I'm not biased. I'm not. I'm super open and really cultural. And I've been all over the world. So I have tons of friends from all over. Every corner of the planet. I'm just not biased. This sound like something you could stand behind? Here's the thing. I got some news for you. Scientists have found a measurable correlation between the amygdala activity and implicit racial and other biases. What we know from the research in psychology today that's been reported by Dr. Bernhard Luskin is that we can actually see a visual brain response of bias, even though an individual is not conscious of it. Racism, sexism, homophobia, and more are measurable in people who are not consciously aware of it. Bias is in place whether you're aware of it or not. And thanks to modern technology, it can be measured. Kind of hard to ignore, kind of hard for us to deny when we're walking around with an amygdala. However, the good news is that the first step towards neutralizing these types of biases is awareness. So this episode is an extension of what we started last week with Jerry Jones and Kath Brew in our episode called Unlikely Connections. That was an invitation to think about your own biases, stereotypes, and to see what new ways you can create understanding. This episode is an extension of that. And one, I have to say, which is very, very personal and somewhat vulnerable from my side because I'm going to give you a behind-the-scenes view of bias as it has played out in my own life. And thanks to expert Isabel Min for joining us today in Expat Happy Hour. She and I are going to share with you what happens when two individuals who are focused on culture and communication come together and are honest about our own biases. Let me tell you a little bit about Isabel first before she joins us. She is phenomenal. She's known as a catalyst for individual and organizational transformations. She has been the creator and the one who's delivered a series of intercultural programs around the challenges for cross-cultural teams, both in and out of Korea. She's a phenomenal communicator, and it comes from her years in broadcasting. She has taught at the Sung Kyun Kwan University as an adjunct professor. She is a certified professional coach, trained facilitator, and leadership competency assessor. 
this lady knows what she's doing. She comes with 30 years of international upbringing and career experience in six countries and five languages around the world. She is the founder and CEO of Transition Catalyst Korea Institute and more. So today's episode, I've invited Isabel to join and give you a behind-the-scenes view of bias and how deeply it can be held, whether it's conscious or not, an invitation for you to think of how it plays out in your own life. Hello, it is 11 a.m. in New York, 5 p.m. in Johannesburg, and 10 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to the Expat Happy Hour this is Sunday Shenander Bean from sundaybean.com. I'm a solution-oriented coach and intercultural strategist for individuals and organizations, and I am on a mission to help you adapt and succeed when living abroad and get you through any life transition. So you've just heard the impressive credentials of Isabel Min and what she does to serve others especially in the intercultural and third culture kid space. What you're going to hear now is a behind the scenes view of how I met Isabel and what happened next. So first and foremost, Isabel, thank you so much for joining us on Expat Happy Hour. It is such a pleasure to have you today. Really, I really appreciate your time, and um, I appreciate your willingness to to share our experience, our what for me was a deeply personal experience, um, and I'm excited for our listeners to find out how that connects to to your work and also to why I do what I do. So let's let's give them a behind the scenes view. You know, Isabel, I remember seeing you for the first time in Bangkok at the Family and Glo- Families in Global Transition Conference. I was having breakfast with Ruth Von Recken, just dropping names there because it's Ruth Von Recken. <laughs> and um, you walked by, right? Um, I believe you were with um, Esther Tan, is that right? And um, we said hello. So from the outside, it seemed like just, you know, a quick hello, you uh, spent some time talking to Ruth, and then you went on on your day. Afterwards, um, what people heard last week in episode 144 with Jerry Jones and Kath Brew, there was this really impactful um, lightning round, so a speech that Kath and Jerry did together that really created an openness of dialogue in the whole conference around identity and around our own biases, followed by Dano Tanu's um, speech about hidden identity. So it created this space where we were thinking and talking about things, right? <clears throat> Fast forward to the rooftop restaurant. I went to the bathroom, walked out, and I saw you and Jerry Jones talking. So I dropped by, right? Again, all of this seemed just like a normal conference um, protocol, right? People are popping in and out, talking to each other, but I wasn't prepared for what happened next. I want to hear from you. What do you remember? I roll out of the bathroom. I interrupt your conversation with Jerry Jones. And then what happened? Right. I, I'm a, I network a lot. And um, I, I was just talking to Jerry about the impression that he and Kath had created. And I was congratulating them for a fantastic job. And then there you walk out. And I looked up at you because you're so much taller than I am. And I think I said something about... 
um, how unlikely it was for the inner child in me years ago in Brazil when I was just growing up to, to actually approach and want to talk to somebody like you. Right. And so, first of all, for those of you who don't know Isabel, Isabel is an amazing communicator. Um, she's very perceptive. This is what I have my impression of you, Isabel, from the times that we've interacted. She, she's, you're so observant, so self-aware and courageous in your conversations. And I don't think I was prepared for that because I was sleep deprived <laughs> and um, probably already, you know, sort of deeply touched from all these other things that were going on. So um, you shared that with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tapped into something. Um, I don't even know if you remember what happened next. Like for me, this was a significant experience, but for you, it might've just been a, a, total, a tiny blip. May I? Yes. What I remember is your eyes just grew, almost popped out. And then you were, you were saying, oh my God, we have to have a moment mm-hmm. here. And you took a picture of the three of us, Jerry, you and I. So I have that moment captured. And it was after we had shared a few words, of course. Right. And so what, what that did for me was I was so impressed by your one, your self-awareness of, like you said, the, the young girl, um, who went through the third cultural kid experience. And because obviously you do this professionally, you've processed this, you've come to terms with this and you use it in your work to support others. But I was hit in the face with, um, that transparency and it tapped into some of my stuff. I'm going to say more about my stuff afterwards, but can you share with the people what you meant by that? What was it? You said I was tall. You also mentioned I was blonde and that had a significance for you. Tell me more. Yes. And so FIGT tends to do that to me. You know, it's one of those places where we can be step out of our own um, cocoon and actually experiment and talk. And yes, I am pretty risky in my uh, communication, Especially because I feel that I, I felt that I could with you somehow in the way that you're affably um, allowing and embracing people. So I felt I, I was really honest with you, something that I probably would not have done back in Seoul, of course. But I remember saying how when I went through the American school in Brazil in the late 70s, uh, mid to late 70s, and I was a, just a teenager, really not fluent in English. I didn't feel that I could approach. And you were in my, as a child's mind, you were that teacher image, blonde, tall, Mm -hmm. very outgoing, very kind, but somebody that with my limited English, I could just not approach or feel that as if I would be seen by you, that you would take any interest. And of course, this is a collective memory of the many times when I did feel exactly that way, neglected, not seen, not really knowing and feeling very stupid. So I would have shied away. But there you were. And Mm -hmm. years later, many, many years later, decades later, there I was actually blurting it out. So that was Mm -hmm. what was happening. Well, and I have people hear me say this all the time on the podcast. I have chills up my arms because when I when something powerful like that hits me, I, my whole body responds. Put this in context. So for those of you who are listening, Isabel's experience as a third culture kid with an Asian ethnicity in an English speaking context, international school context, directly ties to the research of to now Tanu mm-hmm. about hidden identities and hidden racism, right? What is going on? This is what I want to know. What is going on yeah. that 
when blonde, tall, outgoing, kind people, probably AKA also white, um, create an experience inside where you don't feel seen. We, what is going on here? And I think that's what the research shows as well. And we're going to hear about that in next week's episode. Something is going on and it's not conscious. It's not intentional, right? Hmm. But something is going wrong. It's that feeling of feeling very, very small in an atmosphere where everybody else is, is natural. It's that sense of not knowing. And the year was actually 76, 1976, the bicentennial year. And I need to tell you, the first day I arrived at school, they were practicing the bicentennial parade, you know, the, the 4th of July, Independence. Yeah. And so they were parading with this boy in the in front playing the you know the was a tambourine or a drum, and I had no idea what that was. And I felt mm-hmm. because of the number of people that were following, I felt as though I should know. And I had no words to describe what I was feeling: shame, perhaps feeling like. And and I wish that my parents were there, but they they dropped me at school, a very expensive school for the Korean diplomats, you know salary and I knew I couldn't run back to parents and say I don't want to go to this school because I don't understand but there I was a full teenager fully grasping uh, how older how much older I am than compared to um, my classmates because I have been demoted because I couldn't speak English I was in a fifth grade but I was already a by age standard sixth grader so you know because I couldn't speak there I was, and and I didn't know what softball was, and so of course when they were when the PE physical education teacher was there to selecting two best players to pick on their teams, I would be the last one left out, the tall, um, already in puberty, feeling very very uh, awkward, not being chosen until the last, and not even knowing the, the rules of the games. So it continued, you know, if there was an international bazaar, I had no idea how this is done, how, what my mom should be prepared for. And my mom, of course, has no idea either. So, and, and I don't want to embarrass her. I don't want to embarrass myself. But even the way that everybody's dress is different, the boys and girls from America, or from Brazil, the, the very rich Brazilians, of course, in every international school, locally, you have people who are very affluent, who send their kids to in international schools, but I was not at par with them. I didn't wear the Levi's. I didn't have the Wrangler. I, you know, this may sound silly, but even the lunch boxes that we were carrying, I didn't have those Barbie lunch boxes. So what you're saying, I'm going to interrupt you here for a second because this is so interesting. You talked about this being in 1976, and it's going to be. Some people are listening who are going to say. Well, things have changed. And I'm going to say that's not true (laughs) because I was just reading a book by Catrice Jackson about um, uh, advocates and allies. I'll have to get, I'll put the title in the show notes when I get the real one, but it is about how in, in dynamics where there is a majority and a minority, the majority sets the rules, right? They set the tone and then the minority scrambles, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to choose whether they they fit in or not, right? And this can be, this is as connected to culture, it's connected to power, it's connected to class, right? And it's who's the in-group and who's the out-group. And especially for any kid who's in middle school, we know that those things become important. Absolutely. And 
in ways that maybe you don't you don't realize. So this is about being an insider and an outsider, whether it's then uh, when you were at school or right now in any international school or any cross-cultural context, we always have insiders and outsiders. Yes. And in those days in American school, the idea of the insider outsider was a popularity thing that you probably are very familiar, but I didn't experience anywhere else. So and it was very apparent that I was not a popular kid. And to not have the framework of the, of the way that that culture, the American culture in that case, works is what puts you off because you, have, you don't know where to begin to fit in. Right. And your family culture might be in direct opposition <laughs> of the culture at the school which would make you successful, right? So you're put in this dilemma. And that's why this conversation is absolutely relevant today in 2019, because this dynamic is is happening now. And people like me, for example, who's part of the majority culture, right? If we're at an American international school setting, but there is a lot of I'm putting this in air quotes, normalcy of what I do is what is done. Right. Because it's from the dominant culture. You know, you make brownies. <laughs> I, we do brownies at home. So that's not a stretch. Right. It would be like if I went to a school and everybody wanted me to bring samosas, I'd be like, what? How do I uh, you have to Google that? Right. But there's this insider and outsider reminder in so many ways in the clothes that people wear and the food, the language, everything. And it's hard enough in the dominant group to find your way in the in and out group, right? But then imagine all the cultural complexity that's going on. Yes. And speaking of family culture, way, yes, it was so different. And I remember my dad years later would tell me, because I was the first and only child who had gone to an American school uh, previously in Italy, my family had sent all the kids to Italian school. We could not, as a poor country diplomat afford to send to international school. So there I was, the first child to go to international school with a big investment on my parents' side. And Mm -hmm. at some point Mm -hmm. they started fearing because I was acting funny at home. I was acting Mm -hmm. in my own language, egalitarian. I I was seeing Mm -hmm. how unfair certain things were. So I was rebelling. And of course, remember I was in puberty, so that was the age as well. So my dad would many years later recall, mom and I, we were deeply worried about what you were becoming. Of course, you turned out fine. So that was the (laughs) family conflict. Right. So I guess this is also this, what I'm hoping that the listeners, what you will take away is to reflect on one, if you are part of sort of a minority culture in your school system and your international community, you are not alone. Mm -hmm. And if your kids are part of that, um, these are important conversations to have because they might be undetected, but still present. The other thing is for those of you who are listening, who are part of a majority culture, this dynamic is happening and you're participating in it. So what can I'm, what can you do? And I'm going to say we, because I'm part of a majority culture in the sort of international school system. What can we do to break down those, um, those sort of ideas of this is normal for everybody? This, in German, we call it selbstverständlich. Like, of course, you know, brownies, everybody's going to make brownies, right? Because that's what we do. No, that's not true. What can we do to be more self-aware as a majority identity that this isn't natural for everybody? And this brings me to what tapped in for me when you shared that with me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so we're back at the rooftop restaurant, right? You just shared that with me. Um, there was, I had this huge shame storm that came up and there was two things that happened. It came in two waves. The first thing, um, what, what impacted me was when you shared that I thought about what are the ways in which I do not see people who are different from me, right? So when you came um, to the breakfast table, I saw you and I felt intimidated (laughs) because you, you know, yeah, you know, you know, you've got these gorgeous glasses and you look really smart. And I know that you were presenting on um, Asian TCK identity and I'm in the TCK space, but you obviously know more about that than I do. And all of these things of like, how do I connect? Where do I connect? And I'm going to be really honest. I'm going to say things that people think, but don't dare say. And I, I could put myself at risk for this, but I'm going to say it. I know if you had been a European researcher, mm-hmm. someone that maybe spoke German or lived in the country right next to me, I would have naturally felt an more of an ease to find ways to connect. Mm. So I am an intercultural specialist. I have a master's degree in this. I teach this. I practice this. And in that moment, I know that that was still part of the dynamic. I know that I wasn't leaping up and with an ease and naturalness, I would have with, let's say, someone who was uh, from Germany or Switzerland, right? So if that's happening with someone who whose job it is to be aware of this, imagine what's going on inside of each and every one of us in ways that we don't see because it's unconscious bias. That's our brain and how it works, or it is unconscious and we don't want to see it. Mm. So what did for me, the first sort of shame storm that happened was what have I done at this conference in the last two days to connect with people that are different from me. Wow. And how many times have I been at in in conferences and social situations where I didn't seize that opportunity? And mind you, Families in Global Transition is kind of a place where you you kind of reconnect with your online buddies and you're finally, you know, in the same space. So you kind of are selfish with your time. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, again, also being part of a majority identity you know, was I dropping the ball? And that conversation, that that shame storm, that awareness, the laziness, I'll say, it, it, that, that made such a positive impact on me um, that the next event I was at in South Africa, which was a very similar dynamic of majority identity, minority identity, I actively sought out to go to women who were very different from me and have those conversations, even though I wasn't sure how I was going to connect, I did it anyway. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you because um, you are giving me the goosebumps right now. <laughs> what you're saying and the risk that you're taking. You see, it's you, you talk about how the majority should be more sensitive and aware, but that is not, not how our brains are wired. Our brains, in my opinion, or from what I've read, are wired to stay in the comfort zone, not to change, not to risk. You know this better than anybody else. So to become aware and have that realize at that moment and then follow it up with courage to go a different path, that's huge. 
Sunday. And for that, I thank that moment on the rooftop. Me too. Me too, really. And now I'm getting all like, my throat is like tightening up because I'm like going to get emotional. So he, I'm, I'm going to go further now, Isabel. I'm going to go further. Um, so after that, so that, that was the first wave, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we talked. And I, I think at the time I blamed it on being sleep deprived, but I'm not sleep deprived now and it's choking me up. So what happened afterwards is um, you walked away, you blew me away. And um, I had to process something that that I shared with you later, but at that time you had no idea. When you talked about this blonde, tall kind, mm-hmm. it totally is so embarrassing. It totally triggered stuff from high school. I'm 42 years old and I'm talking about high school. Oh my God, you guys. And I'm, I'm like, now I'm also self-conscious that people from high school are going to listen to this. <laughs> but um, so here's what it triggered. I'm being really real. So what it triggered is I was the tall, blonde, friendly girl, right? Probably people would say it was in the popular group. Mm-hmm. And I felt so misunderstood for years because people questioned my intentions yes. when I would connect with people who are different from me. Right. You know, I took wood shop. I took art. I like to hang out with the guys that smoked, um, you know, in the back, even though I was the good girl. Like I, I, I like people. I'm interested in people. And because it's this classic American popularity contest thing, people question my intentions you know, what is she campaigning for homecoming queen or whatever? Right. Because I, I would connect with people who didn't, who weren't like me. And yeah. I remember one, this is so embarrassing. People from high school are going to think this is a funny story. It was so one really poignant time for me is we went, um, there was a group of friends that were having like a grunge concert, you know, remember grunge like that green day is kind of the band that, you know, represents it. It was this cool band. Um, from high school, they were having uh-huh. this concert in a, in a basement. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I, I'm a dancer, so I love all kinds of music. And people uh-huh. probably would have categorized me in like the pop music person. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We show up and I remember people looking at me like, why is she here? What were her intentions? <laughs> I thought you could get over what? Like I always felt people were crushing my intentions and and because of the way I fit into like that American stereotype blonde girl, yep. like AKA yep. stupid and mm-hmm. superficial. I think people always um, underestimated my depth and my intelligence. And the pain that both of us are feeling for not being seen authentically for who we are, but by being labeled in one way or the other. I mean, I feel your pain. Okay. So here, this is very kind of you to say that. And I'm going to say, I, it's, I believe it's different because, because of the whole power and identity and history and context, I benefit so much as a white middle-class woman. My pain is very, very minimal compared to people who have been systematically. um, Here's what I'm going to say someday when I repatriated back to Korea at the mm -hmm. end of high school, I know what you mean perceived superficial, perceived privileged, being popular. I was there and still it felt hurtful. Mm-hmm. You're so Which awesome. Is- Look at you. You're still validating. So what we're grappling with right now is I am, you're validating the experience. Each person, you cannot, you cannot compare the depth or the pain. 
I mean, yes, there is more to be done for those who are in the minority. I agree. Whereas those who are in the majority have a little bit, you know, it's the self-awareness and awakening that's necessary. But remember at that rooftop, Mm -hmm. my child was meeting your child. This is why you're so amazing. So right now what you're doing is you're reminding me to, to sort of validate the, the pain for what it is. And that is true um, in terms of it's still something it's childlike that we're, that we're healing. um, And that's important. And what I'm all yeah. to be misunderstood. Yeah, to be understood, to be seen and understood is so critical. And there's so many ways that we're not seen and understood. I think I'm pulling back from like the social justice side um, and sort of the historical power dynamic side and saying, wait a minute, some injustices are different from others because of the historical context and the levity. Mm-hmm. So here's here's where this is where it's connected. Okay, so what happened afterwards is um, I was mm-hmm. having there, it just tapped in hard. So I had to pull Jerry Jones aside and, and debrief this. I was like, I, something just happened and I need to process it. So he was kind and took a few minutes and here's what, what it did for me. And this is what I shared with you in our follow-up call. What it did for me is Mm. there was this moment where I, I was, um, it tapped into my old stuff. Right. And there was pain there. And it was like, it was like, Oh, the, the, the reminder of, I hate it when people put me in a box. I hate it when people underestimate me. I hate it when people, um, see me for something that I not, that I'm not, I hate it when they miss who I am. And then I was like, Oh my God, this is just one moment on a rooftop. I haven't had this moment for a long time. If I were a woman of color, I would have this every single day and that is not okay right that's what you and I talked about afterwards where I had tears in my eyes and I and I have them now this idea like I I get this as an interculturalist I I teach this but like an embodied experience of every single day People who are in a minority situation, whether it's because of their religion, their sexual orientation, the way they look, their skin color, name it, right? Their able-bodiedness or not, like whatever it is, people who are marginalized, every single moment they are put in boxes and sometimes you can't even hide it because of it's a visible marker. And that is not okay. Right? It's not okay that we do this. And I know that our brains do this. I know that biochemically we are programmed to see difference. We're programmed to be biased and I feel like we can do better. Mm. So that's what hit me. And um, again, I share that. I'm just savoring this moment. <laughs> I'm just savoring this moment with your listeners. And I'm, you know, I share that because I feel like it's going to put me out with, you know, this is not white guilt or white fragility. This is like, we need to do better. It's the dawning of the realization how we feel like. I mean, we can read as much as we want about inequality, about, you know, differences and all that. But that was the moment when it really, really, like you've said, embodied it. And that feeling will never go away. That realization of if this is how I feel, 
imagine if I were in their shoes, and that's called empathy. Yeah. <laughs> it's knowing for sure in your body. Mm-hmm. So, so that's okay. the backstory, everybody, <laughs> and you can see um, how amazing Isabel is, and and what benefit there is by processing your stuff, right? The childhood stuff, the identity stuff. As Isabel, tell us more about about you. And thank you for just holding space for me, by the way. Um, thank you. <laughs> tell me more about you and what you do for TCKs and the people that you work with. And how is this connected to what we were just talking about? Yeah. So for me, it took much, uh, many, many years before I could start processing. And of course, FIGT has tr- tr- helped me tremendously. But um, I think the first moment where I realized what had happened to me was the repatriation and then getting married and having a job and and never left Korea after that. I was never an expat. I I travel a lot. I go for businesses a lot, but I never had to move all my belongings. But coming back to Korea to a country that was just at that point in the early 80s, budding into a more developed world. And then finally, Nowadays, Korea is much more prominent economically, but feeling all that, um, I needed to process what had happened to me because at some point it was acting as a, as a very painful memory. Every time that people envied me, for example, for having lived abroad, I would find myself brushing it off almost abrasively and saying, you have no idea what it felt like to live abroad. And of course, in my 30s, I started accepting, hey, from their perspective, that is natural. It is only because I know and feel it, that the other side of the coin, that I'm saying it. So then that was the point when I started looking into it and really feeling what had happened to me about the inferiority, the superiority, about the need to normalize the experience and to understand what TCKness was doing. So at this point in my life, um, you know, people look at my, the work that I have done, broadcasting, public relations and marketing, and a lot of fancy stuff. But And people imagine that I can be very arrogant, that I am all about mm-hmm. being ambitious. But that is, yes, that is true. At the same time, I would rather say, I'm not denying the other side, I have never really had a dream. And that may surprise you because that's not how people perceive. I -hmm. never harbored a possibility of me ever becoming anything. Because if you grow up 15 years living in that state of minority mindset, you don't start dreaming. And when you're moving your home every three years, you don't have dreams. And I was dependent to my parents. So I never made any choice for myself. And of course, all this processing came much later in my 40s and 50s. Right. You see, and even now as I'm married, people don't don't know how very, very submissive in a way. Um, Maybe that's not the right word, but I am so like my mother, not the typical westernized, uh, driven kind of person. Mm. That's, I mean, that is so useful to share, to think about the impact, the unseen, invisible impact. 
the world expects somebody like me to be very aggressive for all the things that I have done. But my pursuits have always been to understand what's happening to me. And my curiosity has taken me to understanding how do people actually communicate? How do how can I support people in seeing the difference? Because when people see the difference or embrace as you are doing right now, it heals me. It heals Mm-hmm. Possible child that may be out there who's suffering because their pain is my pain. I still feel those pains, so that's why I became a facilitator, coach, and all the things. And I still yes. work with TCKs. Every chance that I have, I meet parents and I tell them, give the TCKs a language for what's ex- what they're experiencing. Give them a chance to talk about it because then they don't have to go through the next thirty years as I have, as successful as I have, but internally feeling very, very. Small. Every time I'm networking and I'm seeing all these great people, and and I have this child in me that's saying, "No, no, no! I want to go home. I don't want to go out and network with those blondes and tall people." <laughs> well, you brought me to my knees. <laughs> but you know, having this feeling, internal feeling, every moment, and to have to fight it, mm-hmm. even as I have all these successes behind me. Imagine those who don't have it, how much smaller they must feel. Right, right. And your self-awareness, this is what I find is just so amazing. And and thanks to the work that you've done, right, and to the work that you do, you've got that self-awareness. So what advice do you have um, for parents um, of children? Let's do it like this. What advice do you have for parents of kids that are a, a bit like you and mm. parents of kids who are a bit like me? What advice do you have based on your expertise and your years of experience? For parents of kids like me, I would say uh, typically Asian parents are much more hierarchical. They expect their kids to be much more, uh, you know, obedient. Well, that's all fine. I'm not changing that culture, but be open to what they're going through. Just allow them to speak. And... Mm-hmm. be silent as these kids speak about it and normalize their experience. Say, honey, that is normal. You don't speak their language. And that doesn't mean you are stupid. Uh, just because mm-hmm. doing, they're doing a math in a different level, that doesn't make you you know, stupid. It's just that you've changed school. So when you normalize all that, they, their self-esteem and confidence can at least grow not normally. As for parents of children like you, let me think. <laughs> That's the harder reason. So yeah. majority culture, majority culture. So this idea of hit, like w- with the research from Danau, the hidden mm. racism, the ways in which, you know, people from dominant cultures silence or don't see others as children or as parents in a system. What advice do you have for the majority culture? One thing for sure is not to give a guilt trip. You are so privileged. You all have that. No, 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 no. I don't think that works. It works. uh, Be sensitive to realize that very moment, like the moment you had at the rooftop, when you have some experience that gives you the dawning of, oh my God, is this how the children in the streets feel like, let me give us an example. Let's say your child is suddenly one day left alone unexpectedly and she goes through a half day of panic. And then perhaps as you console and, and you know, take care, um, perhaps the kid will say, mom, is this how kids without parents would feel? 
Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful moment when you applaud them and say, yes, honey, that is. And this is, this is what you can do with it. And, and keep this precious moment with you. Don't forget about it. Because mm-hmm. this, this is the emotion that will help you through the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Say that. It's a big job. That's it's what big, I would. Yeah. Yes. It's a big job. Whew. We have a lot of work cut up for us, don't we, Isabel? You're doing fine. You're beautiful. <laughs> Imagine if people were listening. Um, I congratulate you so much and I applaud every, every step. Thank you. It's so amazing. So thank you um, for being here. I hope that people who are listening start reflecting on their own position and think about where they are in terms of how they see themselves, whether they're keeping themselves small or whether they're taking up a lot of space and not reflecting on at what cost that is for others. Um, Even, you know, people like me that are nerdy and love thinking about cultural differences and intercultural awareness have moments where, where I drop the ball, Mm -hmm. where I allow my brain to take over and I, and I stop looking on the metal level. And I know that, that I can do better. I know that um, we all can do better because our, our identities are at stake. Our self-worth is at stake. And that's the whole sort of intention of this series when we started with Jerry and Kath in the last episode of looking, how do we see others and what new questions do we have for ourselves and for people who we might not um, see fully. So thank you, Isabel, for, for allowing me to continue that conversation and giving me your time and your um, wisdom and expertise and making space for that today. I'm in awe. Thank you so much, Sunday. So it's mutual, Isabel. <laughs> so if people want to find more about you and um, would like to find out more about your expertise, what is the best place for us to reach you? Well. Um... You, you probably can put up my uh, website, which is www.tck.or.kr. Or I am okay. available on LinkedIn, Facebook. My name, Isabel, is spent, spelled the French way. I-S-A-B-E-L-L-E. Exactly. I'll put that in the show notes. So anybody who wants to reach Isabel, I'll put the n- notes in the show notes. Isabel, I'm going to brag on you a little bit before we go. Um you are a phenomenal person. I know that you're a phenomenal coach and um, that you connect with people in ways that disarms them in the best possible way. So um, I look forward to seeing what you do next and want to thank you again for being here today on Expat Happy Hour. So there you have it, folks. There's the peek behind the curtain of one interaction over a series of 24 hours with Isabel Min, a tiny glimpse of what's possible when we get conscious of our unconscious. And what we walked through is to look at how seemingly innocent things, like what they serve at international schools or the lunch boxes that are used, can create triggers for in-groups and out-groups. We looked at how if you're a minority culture in a school system, that you're not alone. 
And if your kids are part of that, there are important conversations that you can have because of what might be undetected, but still present. For those of you who are listening, who are part of the majority culture, this dynamic is likely also still happening and you may be participating in it or even benefiting from it. So it's a case for those in the minority identity to raise self-awareness around our impact. It's an invitation for you to be honest with yourself. How do you interact differently with others who look and talk differently from you? Whom do you embrace with ease? Whom do you just not see? And it is an invitation to go a different path. Because I believe we can do better. You've been listening to Expat Happy Hour with Sunday Schneider Bean. Thank you for listening. It is my internal commitment for us to do better. We have the privilege of living abroad, interacting with cultures from every corner of the globe. And I believe that together we are stronger. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I have something behind the scenes that I am cooking up that is just for those who are serving the expat community, because I do believe that together we are stronger and we can together do better. So if you are a coach or working with expats, check out the show notes on what I've got going to bring us together to do better in our own lives and for the lives of others. I'll leave you with the thoughts of Edward Everett Hale. Coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. <laughs>